0: hard to believe that you can make good money doing what you love while making the world a better place? I feel you. My name is Eden, and I'm a holistic business coach who spent years in nonprofits believing things like money is the root of all evil and trying to spiritually bypass capitalism before my desire for comfort, freedom, and stability outweighed my attachment to my limiting beliefs. See, after years of helping myself and many, many clients create profitable, regenerative feeling businesses that honor our spiritual and material needs, I launched New Money Social Club to give the very best coaching, community, and strategy for aligned abundant growth. To believe it, we've got to see it. So this podcast centers the stories of diverse entrepreneurs who are daring to live, work, and create on their own terms in the spirit of a mutually flourishing, equitable new economy. Hello and welcome to this extra special founder talk um, with a woman I so revere, Michelle Shenandoah an inspirational speaker, writer, thought leader, traditional member of the Oneida Nation Wolf Clan of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and founder of Rematriation, an indigenous women's led magazine and movement to return the sacred to the mother. I'm your host, Eden, and I'm the creator of New Money Social Club, a membership platform that helps purpose-driven people heal their relationship with money and marketing so they can build profitable, sustainable businesses that help make the world a better place. I'm going to try to keep this brief because listening to Michelle is a gift for all of us and in an effort to place myself and give honor where it's due, um, I just want to share a few things. So I grew up in a small village north of Syracuse, New York, which was technically Onondaga territory. And growing up, the land felt in many ways to me where I grew up relatively unremarkable. It was post-industrial, post-farming, pretty impoverished, and from my viewpoint, pretty culturally and spiritually depleted. But as I grew older and my parents brought us to events and made community with our indigenous neighbors, I learned some of the stories and the histories living in these gentle hills and generous lakes. And I began to feel not only connected, but grounded, motivated, and forever inspired by our indigenous neighbors, equally honored and burdened to call this land my home. A lot of people who look like me once we reach some level of consciousness and means find ourselves traveling to faraway places like India or Bali to find meaning and spirituality. But systemically overlooked and unattributed is the wellspring of philosophy, cosmologies, spiritual technologies that have sustained Haudenosaunee people and their ecosystems right here on these lands for time immemorial. The Haudenosaunee are six sovereign indigenous nations that span the width of what many of us know of as upstate New York, the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, the Seneca, and Tuscarora. And together they make up the oldest living participatory democracy on the face of the earth. And if you're wondering if their democracy inspired America's concept of democracy, the answer is yes, Google Onondaga Chief Ken Estato's, uh speech to start. And if you're wondering if the early suffragettes who were living amongst the Haudenosaunee and observing their gender equity, balance and respect, if that influenced their idea of women's rights, the answer is also yes, another one that you can Google and another fact that remains completely unattributed. Michelle lives in this legacy. I first heard her speak at an event she did with her husband, Neil Paulus, on Haudenosaunee gender roles that took place at the Ganondagan State Historical Site with my good friend, and both of us were forever changed. Michelle presented as a spiritual advisor to the Pope recently in the First Nations delegation at the Vatican that prompted his apology regarding Indian residential schools. She was raised in a family of traditional leadership. She carries the values and responsibilities of being a Haudenosaunee woman throughout her life. Um, Inspired by her grandmothers who led generations of Oneida Nation land claims, Michelle carries her ancestors passion to rematriate her people's lands and bring about the truthful telling of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy's global influence on modern democracy and women's rights. And through her storytelling as a filmmaker, writer, and speaker, Michelle creates safe spaces to share tools and resources that she has learned from her own healing journey and lived experiences. She's also co-founder, owner, and principal at Indigenous Concepts Consulting with her husband, Neil Paulus, and together they help businesses and media companies develop their own organizational best practices through an Indigenous values-based lens. From my perspective, there is no way forward in the climate conversation, in conscious capitalism, in sustainability, in equity or inclusion, or in the future of America without the consent and guidance from Indigenous people. And I am so honored to hold space for this conversation with this tremendous woman today who is doing such beautiful work in the world. So without further ado, I want to welcome Michelle and I want to allow you to introduce yourself in any way that feels right for you to begin.
1: Wonderful. Well, um, yeah Segguly Seggue, galuhia you know gets Onyote e. Um, I'm Michelle Shenandoah. My Oneida name is Galuhianuas, Nuez, which means that she is fond of the sky. And to me, that is my connection to our ancestors, to the wisdom that they share with us. Um, and also just looking onto the horizon for what's yet to be right. Um, so, um, you know, you did a really great, uh, introduction. So, um, Thank you very much for that. I'm sure we'll get into um, a lot more uh, today as well. So yeah, let's start. But I I do, um, I do want to just say thank you, everyone um, who is here. I did take um, uh, a few extra days in Southern California for some really well overdue retreat time, which I recommend everyone please make sure you take time for you. And um, so I'm, I'm actually sitting right by the ocean. And maybe you might be able to hear some fake noises of the the, <laughs> the waves, which, you know, let that energy just kind of flow into our conversation and, and be with us today. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you, Michelle. I just somehow thank knew you. that you were going to like say something that I needed, and I needed that. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And I'm sure that a lot of other folks here too uh, can take that in as well.
1: Yeah, and so I also, I also just want to note, I'm on my iPad, so it's always weird because I don't know where I should be looking, <laughs> and it's, so sometimes it looks like I'm looking off in the distance. And I promise you, I'm here with all of you. <laughs> I just still don't know zoom and ipads they're not very compatible but we're here we've got a lot of compatibility so
0: let's let's jump in (laughs) we got it and you look perfect and um awesome so so yeah so this is um you know I I sent an email earlier this week on this I referenced this term that I learned recently called it's it's a term called ecotones and it's where two ecosystems kind of like meet so we're like so a shoreline, right, where the ocean is meeting the sand or, you know, um, uh, where a meadow meets uh, the forest, right? And it's these sites of both, uh, in many ways, it can be rife with a lot of loss, but also just biological diversity and like new types of life and adaptations springing up. And when I think about my, you know, understanding, my my baby understanding and, and experiencing of, uh, your culture, right. And, and just kind of learning more and more. And then when I also think about conversations of like money and business and capitalism, it can kind of almost feel to a degree, like there's almost these two very different conversations. And so I'm just very interested in, um, in 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 holding <laughs> space for whatever emerges today, um, and like I mentioned, I think there's really no way forward in any type of kind of conscious business building um, without uh, without not just only the perspective of indigenous people and philosophies, and especially the culture that I'm you know mo- like most closest to distance wise, um, but the actual just uh, leadership and perspective. So anyway, um, to this is New Money Social Club, right? And so kind of like this mashup of New Money Social Club and rematriation here in this space, um, we talk a lot about money and our relationship with money and and capitalism, right? Um, that's something that anybody who's who finds their way to New Money Social Club is usually somebody who's more of a purpose driven type of person, whether they're in like the healing arts or a creative and they struggle to really find their connection in a in a positive way to money and capitalism, and so I imagine you've lived quite an interesting uh, life in regards to um, the many kind of cultural spaces that you're a part of, and so I just wanted to start by asking. What has your experience been like growing up um, in terms of your relationship with with money and this kind of broader capitalist system? Um, are there any kind of stories you heard growing up about money that you want to share? Um, yeah,
1: sure. Um, well, that's a, I think it's an interesting journey for everyone, right? Um, <clears throat> maybe, and I, I I guess I can't make assumptions if you were born into wealth that you have a different. Um, kind of understanding with money, because I'm sure maybe even there, there's a a development of what your relationship is uh, to wealth. But for myself, um, I did not grow up having um, a lot of money in my family and my community. And I grew up, you know, on our traditional territories We don't call our territories a reservation. That's a government designation and the land that I live on and grew up on um, is unceded Oneida territory. And so we still call it Oneida territory. Um, But with that, I mean, you know, indigenous peoples historically have really been pushed aside um, uh, whether by force, uh, by policy, by both, and or murder, right? I mean, there's just so many ways in which the invisibilizing of indigenous peoples across the land um, for the sake of economic growth and development um, of this country. So I I feel very fortunate in that I did grow up in our traditional territories um, and to be able to say that because there are a lot of our people who did not, who were removed and forced into um, other areas across what we call Turtle Island. So for me, um, you know, growing up, I mean, just being indigenous is, was always, you know, when when I was younger, we didn't call ourselves indigenous. Um, Often the term Indian was used. later came Native American, later came American Indian, and now we're at arriving at Indigenous, right? So I guess that's kind of the most politically correct, um, kind of to speak more generally about, you know, our populations of people. Um, but the most sort of proper is to call us by our actual names um of our nations our tribes our bands right so for me that is oneida but then even that is a very anglicized way to um call us by our name so we're the onyoteaka which means the people of the standing stone Um, but i certainly don't expect everyone to um to know this and so speaking of which um of of names of nations, um, I just want to make note that I actually am calling in today, um, you know, here on the shores in Southern California, and the lands of the Luseno and the Kumie people. And so I'm, you know, really privileged to be here within their territories. Um, But where I'm really going with this is is kind of um, just my experience. Um, When I was a child growing up, Not only was there my community, but we connected a lot to other communities everywhere. I traveled um, back and forth across the eastern seaboard to the southwest. um, And all along the way, like our families always would stop in and visit other uh, Native communities, um, whether it was, you know, friends, family. um, We're just very um, sort of connected in that way. It is, it is there is a, a network um, within, um, here's yeah, another term for you, um, what people will call as Indian country, right? Um, I don't really like that terminology personally. I find it a bit problematic because it's kind of really uh, rooted in federal policies in terms of calling us Indians, but Nonetheless, it's still something that's used as a way to kind of talk about all of our communities collectively. <clears throat> but what I had experienced um, and seen growing up was just real extreme poverty. Um, and I guess if I were to say so, I grew up in that in that same extreme poverty as well. And as a child, right, you hear so many people say, Well, I never knew I was poor. And um, it's not really until you really start to get a little bit older and experience yourself in the world and you see what other people have, what they don't have. You hit the strange age of adolescence where everyone starts to compare each other or what you have and, and not. And so that's when I kind of really started to become aware of our living situation and not just my family, but our communities and um, it was very difficult, but as as I grew older, I mean, I think some of the stories I heard were centered around money, as if it was a, a type of energy. I wouldn't even want to say energy. Uh, it was something that if you were to accumulate a lot of, that it could have some harmful effects on you, and that as if somehow having a lot of money was was a bad thing. Um, and, you know, I'm a very observant person, even as a child, I was very observant. And so throughout my life, I've, I've questioned a lot of most of everything of what I've been told. Um, but at some point at an early age, um, you know, I, I started babysitting when I was a little kid and I always had money. Um, And I was always able to, to do things, you know, to be able to um, buy things on my own. And I was, you know, and then when as, as a teenager, I, you know, started working and I realized somewhere in here, I kind of developed my own sense, which is there's always money to be made. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't feel that it was out of reach, but I could see that there was a lot of belief around as if somehow money is really outside um, you know and that I could see how some people struggled feeling like they felt very disconnected um, you know within our communities. Um, but yeah there was this belief system around it as well. Um, so in my life, I feel that I've I've taken a bit of a different approach and understanding when we're talking about money, Per se, um, <clears throat> that um, I think my my more sort of evolved space with it is really centered around. It's an energy. It's a transference of of energy, and it's good nor bad. Right? It's it's neither one. It's not good. It's not bad. It's it depends on what you choose to do with this. Um, now do I believe that it needs to be the system to, you know, forever dictate how we live our lives? I don't think so. I really don't. Um, and especially when I, I bring that back down to the teachings, um, you know, that we have as as indigenous peoples or as Quotinoshoni peoples. Um, yeah. So I know I'm just kind of going on, this is a bit of, you know, the I know you have a lot of questions for me today, but, you know, so I just wanted to kind of give you a little bit of that, you know, background in regard to, you know, what is when you ask the question, like, what is my money story, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's perfect. I really, really appreciate that, Michelle. I think that what you've shared, I know, is resonant for a lot of people. And, you know, part of the reason why we kind of start things off with this question is because, we don't talk about money as a culture and I, I I, like as a broader culture. And um, and I get why it's really uncomfortable for a lot of us. And I think that it can systemically work against a lot of us without money. Right. And so the more kind of, yeah, just storytelling we can offer and recalling, I think uh, can be helpful. And so as you were speaking, you, kind, you were kind of going into this. But I, I am curious, like, can are there any stories from your traditional culture um in terms of because like people around the world forever have been trading you know goods and services on some level there's been always been some sort of exchange right um some sort of economic system happening and I'm curious if if you can share any yeah any stories or or ways of seeing that type of exchange um from your traditional culture
1: yeah so uh, I think it's really important to when you talk about historically Indigenous people or cultures is is really removing the lens <laughs> that is generally applied that there's a, a um, like a standard or that you know this is your perspective and what I ask people to think about is to to remove that. So that this way you can be more of an open canvas and actually hear what's being shared versus filtering it through a lens to then try to make sense um, in regard to what is actually being shared. Um, And so when you look at the culture, um, the history of Haudenosaunee people, um, you see that. First of all, we're matrilineal people, matrifocal, and very much centered in a life way that is about caretaking for each other, okay? I think that when we begin to look at that being rooted in the culture, it makes such a tremendous difference in understanding how we operate, why we operate the way that we do. And when, when you back up and you go all the way back to very early times of human beings, um, imagine for the first time experiencing death as human beings on the planet, right? Like, what a shock. How would you know that something like this could happen or would happen? <clears throat> what do you do? These are your family. They're your loved ones. You don't know what's happened. Um, and so... People were very, really, very sort of overcome with grief and not understanding how to process uh, that grief. Um, and so, I'm sure many of us here have lost, um, you know, loved ones throughout the way. And and when we do, it's like you get this like tightness in your chest, or you know, you cry so hard you can't see, or you know, you really have a hard time hearing. You have a hard time speaking. You have a lump in your throat, and. <clears> throat> there was a young man who had this vision about creating um, a system that would help us to care for one another. And he asked for the eldest woman from these different families to go to the water's edge in the morning and to report um, what animal that they saw. And they would come back and report to the young man and they would talk about, you know, what side of the water was on. And, you know, there's more of a, more, to the story than that Um, but ultimately what it led to was that this was the development of our clan system and so for instance you know you had mentioned and I had mentioned them in my introduction in my language um, that I'm a member of the Oneida Nation of the wolf clan and we gain our clan through our mother and so what happens is is we can trace back all the way back to that early time in human history when the clan system was developed because every time a child is born, they are given their mother's clan. and so I descend from the wolf clan of the Oneida people. and with that, once all the clans were determined where they would be, there was two women that each saw a bear on both side of the water. so, when they came back and reported, one group of clans would sit on one side of our longhouse and, or the house, right? And then the other group would sit on the other side. <clears throat> and two women came back and, and they both saw a bear and they had to determine, well, okay, well, where are the bears going to sit? Because, you know, they were both sitting on both sides of the river. And they had this three-way discussion that was passing the issue back and forth, and this became the way which we also made decisions within our long houses, passing the issue back and forth between the houses. It should sound familiar to you. Um, and so the bears, you know, end up sitting on one side. So what happens is when we lose a person, A family member on one side of the house, it becomes the responsibility of the other side of the house to care for that side of the family. All those clients on that side of the house are technically grieving. And so we'll come and we'll tend to each other, we'll care for each other so that you can get through that period of grief, having others to care for you and your family. Right. And so with that, eventually, these clan mothers then also become the overseers of of our gardens and our fields of corn right and corn um corn beans and squash for the Haudenosaunee are sort of our primary staples and the corn just being these vast fields of corn and not the yellow corn that you think of but it's a different type of a white corn that's very specific to our people and basically what would end up happening is that these corn mothers, clan mothers would be the ones to oversee the distribution of food, right? So food really becomes your economy. It became, it was our economy. And your ability to feed all of your people is your wealth, right? because then you don't have anybody who is left hungry. You don't have anybody who is left without. And so this is how it goes. Eden, you could have five children and I could have one. That's actually the reverse in in real life. But so, you know, and say we're, you know of the same community. And what would happen is we would all contribute towards the development of our food growing processes to provide for the community, to provide for each other. But you would receive enough food to provide for you and your five children. And I would receive enough to provide for me and my one. And it was not based upon how much effort you give or how much effort I give, right? And in today's world, I could technically have a job that pays way Way more than, say, what you're earning. And you could be just getting by, having hardly enough to feed your family. And I can live in a comfortable spot with myself and my one and my wealth, and I don't need to worry about you. In fact, I don't even need to think about you. What is going on? That's what I ask, because in the system that we had that we also share has very much to do with even this concept that we share um, with other nations, which is called the one dish, one spoon, which is if one of us eats, then we all eat. We have to do what we can to distribute it so that everybody is provided for right? And we all share out of this dish, this dish of life that provides for us. So that's a really, really very different space than what you see happening today. And that to me is the very vivid example of the difference between our life way and the capitalistic society and structures that have been built up and impacted the world, truthfully. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing those stories, Michelle. (laughs) I know that the way that it feels in my body when I hear the thought of, you know, a whole side of the family taking care of a different, you know, side of the family when somebody, like, that's, it's just it makes so much sense and it is the exact opposite, right. Of what I think most of us experience in this dominant culture here in America. And so you, you, um, I, I understand that, you know, you've, you've been a lot of places and you've had, you've walked through many different worlds, if you will. Right. how, like <laughs> how do you make sense make meaning how do you um how, how what is how is it for you to walk amongst these many different worlds right to hold space for your own cultural values and traditions right while also living in this larger system that feels so kind of antithetical to a lot of these values like i'm just curious what your philosophy is on how you walk (laughs) through this life with those realities
1: sure well i will say it speaks to the brilliance of our cultural teachings to be able to um continue to persist to continue to be resilient and to continue to teach right i think most indigenous peoples that i know are teachers of some sort, ambassadors of some sort of these messages. And again, you know, I'm speaking from a very Haudenosaunee um, point of view, and that could be very different um, than, say, of the Diné people in Arizona and New Mexico um, or, you know, the the Lummi people of, um, you know, uh, up in the Northwest uh, territories um, in Washington state. Right? So they, they can be very different in terms of our cultural practices, protocols, uh, our stories. They they can be very different. One of the common themes that you know I feel though is that we have this real understanding um, in terms of being able to walk in connection with our relationship to to the earth, to all that provides for us. And you know, what are our stories based around that will be very different. Um, and so how do I walk through this space? Well, it's, it's, it's taken time to really come to a deeper understanding about um, not only who I am, but also that of my people and our teaching, right? I think anybody who comes in our process of growth, right? Like we we question what we've been taught. Um, And at the same time, um, you know, I went out into the world. I lived in New York City. I went to law school to work on our land claims. Um, And I, I spent a lot of time, you know, just kind of searching like, you know, because the perspective of the capitalistic society made me feel somehow that my culture and my people and our teachings were less than, right? As if there was something inherently um, broken or something wrong. And so I went out into the world to sort of seek and to find, well, what are those things that, you know, I can bring back home that's going to help us be in a better place or space, whatever that might be, right? to um, address overcoming traumas. But, you know, in my young age, the the discussion of trauma really wasn't on the forefront, but that's what I was experiencing and that's what I was feeling and wanted to address. So as I went out into the world um, and discovered that, okay, well, this mainstream culture, sure, I'm learning things, I'm meeting people, But in terms of the deeper understanding, I realized that as a Haudenosaunee person, as indigenous people, we actually have a lot to share with the world. And no matter how much I shared, no matter how many times I was in spaces where our culture and histories were overlooked and I was the one voice in the room, um, it was often just very much glossed over. Or you know, space was not created for further discussion, um, and that was really hard. That was really very challenging to be in that position. And I know so many Indigenous peoples who have been in the same situation, who have been in the same scenario. <clears throat> I started doing some consulting, uh, working with other Indigenous nations and tribes and bands across the country, and I began to realize that you know they're experiencing a lot of what i was also feeling and to me that was the impacts of colonization right that those were the effects of genocide truly and genocide doesn't mean that an entire people just go extinct overnight and then are gone but yet it are you know it's a it's a process of acts to eliminate a culture of people and that's what we've been experiencing for five hundred years and to me one of the the one of the moments that I, I would have had no idea would have such an impact on my life was what's called this doctrine of discovery right so I head off I finally make it to law school my um, great grandmother was somebody who worked quite uh, diligently and writing to the U.S. government and saying, hey, um, you know, these Oneida lands were taken. Um, They were taken by New York State. We need to have this resolved. The, you know, Supreme Court came back and said, yes, this legitimately is your land. It was illegally taken. And New York State, you need to settle with the Oneidas. And that process of settlement would go on for more than 60 years and so when I was growing up I grew up in the middle of that and I come from a family of leadership so my grandmother was one of our clan mothers and my mom was one of her faith keepers so in our leadership you have a clan mother she chooses her chief and he chooses um, his sub chief who is his helper and then there's two faith keepers And they do exactly that, which is helping to keep the faith in our way of life, of living with a good mind and living in peace. And so my mom is one of my grandmother's faith keepers, or was, because my grandmother has since passed. So growing up, I would be sitting in these meetings about land claims. And at the age of 10, I said, Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a lawyer to work on our land claims, right? And my mother would remind me. Even before going to law school, she would say, Michelle, understand this, that when you get sworn in to become an attorney, you are agreeing to uphold the laws of the United States. And remember that we as Haudenosaunee people, we have our own laws. Right. And you have to remember to uphold those and the laws of the United States. How is it that you can work to defend our people with those laws when those are the very laws that have been designed to eliminate us and to silence us. Right. So, um, you know, I had to sort of like weigh all of this and, um, it's a lot, it's a lot to, to, to think about, to have all of this in your mind, your heart, thinking about who you are. Right. And what, what are you going to do? And, um, you know, I felt pretty convinced that, you know, this was the road that I had to go on. <clears throat> but the year I started law school was the very year that the Oneida case was sort of settled, but not directly. It was indirect through a tax case. And it was the, Cheryl, the city of Sherrill versus the Oneida Indian Nation. And the case was um, written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it was a very, very racist case, and that was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and in which she cited the Doctrine of Discovery against the Oneida Nation. And so for me, that was, I didn't really quite fully understand it at the time. That was in 2005, and that was my very first year in law school. So that should have been my first time, because that shut the door on all Haudenosaunee land claims cases. Through the Supreme Court. That's it. Done. And so I just decided to stay in law school. I was there, Um, but you know the the doctrine of discovery would eventually come to. um, I would come to understand more of what it meant, and really, this is like a series of papal bulls that were written in the late 1400s that created this, what's called a doctrine of discovery that allowed for these explorers to come to the Americas and to claim the lands and the crowns of Europe and do whatever that they wanted with the indigenous peoples, because we weren't Christian. Therefore, we didn't have a right to our own land, to whatever resources it was, to our own bodies, to our own thoughts, to our own, you know, great uh you know to whatever right to our own philosophies of and ways of of living right <clears throat> and so the you know the settlers who came here basically that's what legally gave them title or entitlement or the right so to speak to come here to the americas and claim whatever they wanted and that's the start of genocide right and so <clears throat> This last year, I went to uh, the Vatican with a group, with a delegation of indigenous peoples to address the abuses uh, that happened in the Indian residential schools, um, mostly in Canada, um, even though this did happen here in the United States. Um, But I went on that trip and I was a female spiritual advisor as counterpart to an elder male spiritual advisor who went um, and I was able to address the Pope directly in a private audience with about fourteen other delegates, and I addressed this doctrine of discovery because it is the basis legally for all the land possession, so to speak, of the United States um, within all the territories that they claim. It's in the court. It's 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 in the um, the case law. And it goes all the way back to 1823 in a case called Johnson v. McIntosh. And then you see it again in the 2005 case of the city of Cheryl versus Oneida Indian Nation. And so I was really very upset when that first happened and I didn't really fully understand it. Um, but as I've moved along in time, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually wrote the case the way that she did because To me, it spells out very clearly the very overt racism that exists within this country, the process of genocide, how it eliminates indigenous nations, identity, um, indigeneity, and how this process of genocide has existed in the United States. And it can't be discredited. It can't say, oh, that was so long ago, or oh, that was in 1823, you know, our culture and our society has changed when we're talking about 2005. And so, um, yeah. And, and I do believe that it was also cited um, here in the West Coast as well um, with one of the tribes here. And it potentially could be the Kumie, Um I'd have to double check on that one, but um, yeah. So I know I've, I've had like a really long story of, you know, coming around to, to really answer your question, but you know, for me, that's trying to create space and peace around these issues. Now for me is really my priority and helping to raise awareness for Americans to understand that as Americans are on this process of success, accumulating wealth, where does that wealth come from? You know, let's back up to the story of food, right? And land. And how was that provided for? Who had you know say over these? And it was mostly, not all cases, but mostly in, in the you know, in the realm of the women are women who would have the say over um, the lands and the food and the resources. So, for me, even the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women is directly tied to the doctrine of discovery because who had the power and the authority to make these decisions over the land and the resources? It's the women, right? So, what would you do, right? Silence indigenous women, yeah.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all that wealth of important factual information. And just to kind of, this was definitely something that I learned through you, Michelle, and that just hopefully should stop all of us in our tracks in that, like, literally all of the land theft that happened from indigenous people across the US is like, it's underpinned by this decree from the pope in the late 1400s that literally is just completely racist and says that indigenous people don't have the right to their because they're not considered human in in this christian church's eyes like that and 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 that not being a past issue but this being something that gets held up in court today basically within the so like so that is just um uh just a, a a real uh Yeah, just something that I think we need to just face, (laughs) Um, especially as you mentioned, because, you know, the path to wealth in this country over and over and over again is just kind of spelled out as, okay, you get enough money, you invest in real estate. Right. And real estate is really the kind of surefire way to um, or at least one of the kind of revenue streams that you want to have going on. And just keeping in mind that all of that is underpinned by this completely terrible and racist ideology like there's that that is where the roots of it um I don't know if there's anything that you want to you, you said it all but I just wanted to like underline that. yeah yeah I mean and and you know I
1: know that there's um a lot of discussion and in, in terms of you know what does that you know loss of intergenerational wealth look like over time right I mean I think so much of it is is self-evident Um, But when we're talking about land, the ability to have control over our land and our economies, you know, as indigenous people, you know, that being uh, food, our natural resources, right? I mean, even now, like today, like so many communities can't fish, right? Um, Because the waters are polluted. And that's to be able to sustain yourself as a nation, um, as a community. and it's, it's a challenge, Um, you know, where do you plant when there's not enough land to be able to plant? Mm -hmm. Um, What about, you know, I I think an example, you know, my husband and I, we just recently um, had purchased um, a house on our own stolen land. And now we have to pay taxes on it, right? And so to me, that's just like, wow, we have to buy back our own stolen land. Yeah. To be able to have a place for our families to live, you know, because there's also um, a real housing issue on our territories, on what people will call reservations. Mm-hmm. There, there really isn't enough housing for everyone. And, you know, when you start to look at some of the other bigger implications that that causes, like, so for instance, we have a, um, a tax exempt status, right? So if you, um, either live or work on the, our territories, um, you purchase products, um, they're delivered to our territories. Um, we, you know, would normally not have to pay taxes on them, Um, but the local communities have been finding all sorts of ways to try to stop us from using that, right? It's like, well, you can't really, you know, purchase this, um, you know, tax-free because it needs to be delivered. Well, I live there, so I'm going to be the delivery person, no, you need to have it delivered by, you know, UPS or FedEx or by our delivery service. And it's like, well, you know, but, but the other thing though, that, you know, what I'm getting to in regards to housing is, is, you know, thinking about, well, well, what about if we can't live there? Right. So does that then, therefore it, it automatically, um, uh, prevents us from being able to use this tax exempt status. But when there's, a housing shortage and you can't live there, right? So you see how the law begins to like start to work against you, right? Um, so those are just small things and big things all together, right? And what is that impact generationally over time, right? Think about the loss that you know our people have suffered, our ability to provide for ourselves, when our wealth is you know not just our food i don't want to just think of it in terms of this like physical tangible thing but our wealth is our culture our wealth is our children our wealth is our ability to be able to be regenerative in all of who we are in terms of our language in terms of our ceremonies in terms of our sense of identity as a nation in terms of our sovereignty and all of these little elements begin to chip away at that. And so all of the work we have to do to be resilient to push back on it, right? And a lot of people don't really want to take the time to listen. But think about this. The educational system provides very little in regard to indigenous histories, contemporary issues and people and culture, right? But yet we were forced to learn about European history, American culture, the founding of America, founding fathers, right? Like we had to learn it all. Why, what is stopping the integration of, indigenous histories and contemporary issues and cultures and blend that into spaces of K through 12 and in higher ed, right? Because then we won't be in the space where you need so many of us to be able to help educate pockets of Americans over and over and over and over again. One of our clan mothers, right? The clan mothers are, Her role is to oversee the political and spiritual welfare of the people. And one of our clan mothers from the Anadaga Nation uh, recently, you know, was um, speaking to an audience and said, do you realize the amount of work that's put on us? Every four years, we have to start all over again to educate the government on who we are and their relationship to us, their treaty obligations to us, the history, right? So it's like every four years we have to go through this pattern, whereas it could just be easily solved by incorporating this into the educational system.
0: Right. A hundred percent. And I want to say just like getting out of the way because, and, and yeah. um, And I'm really grateful that you shared that. I, I even in my introduction, I was like, "Can I share about, <laughs> you know, some 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 facts around the Haudenosaunee Confederacy being the oldest living participatory democracy on the face of the earth?" And 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 um and wanting because I'm like, it must feel exhausting <laughs> to have to tell these stories day in and day out in every space that you're a part of when it's like at some point we we need to do uh, a lot of work on this end. Um, and and not only just to do it, but because it's transformational. it's it's like an, a missing piece like um, so okay, switching gears just a little bit. Um, a lot of folks who Wait, but yeah, may I just before you start with that next thought, I just want to be able to share.
1: Right. So if people understand that the U.S. Constitution and democracy that it engages within today is rooted, like its roots come from the Haudenosaunee. And we still have our form of governance that is over a thousand years old. Right. And it still exists to this day. But when the founding fathers created it, they omitted a lot women, the voices of all people of color, but also the voices and the representation of all of life the water, the land, the food, the plants, the birds, the trees, the air, right? They are all living beings that are accounted for in our way of life and future generations, seven generations into the future. That's all accounted for when we go through that process of sitting down and passing decisions back and forth across the house. Because when we do have meetings, we end up still keeping that third space right, available, or not available, that third side of representation. So you have three sides in our governance um, and, in our form of government, excuse me, and then we pass the decision back and forth across the fire, across the house, right? And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And the third side watches as sort of this, you know, neutral party that might have to be a tiebreaker or might have to veto something, right? Like, does this not all sound very familiar to you, right? Where did that come from? Right. Well, that came from us. But there was so much that was left out. And think about how different it would be if we accounted for in all of our decisions, thinking about our impacts on seven generations into the future. Our own children, you know, and grandchildren and grandchildren and grandchildren who we will not walk this planet with. But our decisions that we make today, think about them. We think about will they have clean food? To eat? Will they have clean air to breathe? Will they have clean water to drink? They need to be able to live a life as good, if not better, than what we have today. Right. So, to me, that's how an economy, right? A healthy economy operates. So, I apologize. I just wanted to share that because I think it's important that people understand that there's something. There's more than something. There's a lot of some things, right? Very practical to be included within the form of democracy that the US is participating in because it left so much out. So, if you really want to know and have what democracy looks like and have faith in democracy, because so many people in this country have lost faith in democracy, right? That's so why we have faith keepers to help to remind people, right? These are the teachings. These are the people that we have to think about, right? And so there's so much that can be learned and so much that can be gained by creating space for indigenous knowledge to be shared today.
0: Absolutely. I'm, I am know I'm so gr- glad that you shared that um, for so many reasons. <laughs> um, and. Because I think that, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a tendency for kind of progressive types, you know, folks who are in politics or at the forefront of kind of sustainability mm-hmm. or climate issues to go about, like, thinking of new solutions. And it's like, you don't need to think of any new solutions. Actually, maybe don't even be the one who's trying to think about this, <laughs> like move <laughs> out of the way. And how can we center yeah. and recall people who have this thing figured out and have for, you know, thousands of years? Um so it's a return, and I think I think I just think of it as a getting out of the like for me and for for a lot of Americans, just get out of the way because it's it's not anything that even I think that the way that we are built and what we've inherited that our minds are even capable of um, imagining in in the in the way that truly is going to be reparative um, and in the direction we should be headed. Um, okay, so you know. One thing that I'm curious about, Michelle, um, is so a lot of folks who find themselves in this space around New Money Social Club and and, um, just folks who end up building businesses as, let's say, birth workers or therapists or folks who are doing um, work in these kind of more caring fields. Right. Um, We can struggle to charge our worth. Right. And so. You know, the whole reason why I'm on the path that I'm on is because growing up, I saw my mom, I saw my aunts who were always these kind of creative healing types. And I saw them be very, just like, like, they ruled the household. You know, they were they were the queen of of our of our home growing up and gave us everything that we needed. And um on an economic scale, and when they kind of went, if their husbands left them or whatever happened, they were left completely vulnerable, right? um economically and and kind of um relatively powerless on that level. And so part of my work that I'm really passionate about is just kind of restoring value to those types of, jobs to that type of work, right? And part of that is, um, you know, it's hard to do because society as a whole does not necessarily value these uh, caretaking fields, right? Anybody who's taking care of children, anybody who's cooking, who's cleaning, who's doing these creative or healing services, like systemically our culture under, you know, a teacher does not get paid what somebody on Wall Street gets paid, right? Um, And it's just a given that they're going to get paid less. So Part of this is, um, part of this work is, I think, an internal uh, valuing of of ourselves and also around this healing our relationship with money, right? Because if we're, a lot of the folks that I'm speaking about are the type who um, are also very in tune with or sensitive to the suffering of the world. And so we can kind of adopt this narrative of like, who am I to ask for more if my neighbor has less, right? Who am I to kind of, even charge enough to be able to not be struggling because there's other people out there that have it even worse, right? And so it can kind of like, um, I think there can be a lot of value and importance in, in just giving ourselves the the space. You started off this session by saying how important it is to like take some time for yourself, right? Because um, I think that a lot of these types that I'm speaking of can really be overworked to the point of burnout and like, they're the last person that they take care of. Right. And so I'm just curious if you have any perspective on, um, yeah, just the importance of taking care of yourself, of valuing your work. I know that you've also worked as a consultant and kind of had to go out there and, um, charge rates that are, you know, market compatible and also working for you. So I'm just curious. Yeah. If you have any perspective around that.
1: So, I mean, I think you sort of pointed it out in the sense of, you know, every individual sort of has to determine for themselves, you know, what they, what they believe, how they feel Um, and, you know, come back to, you know, thinking about energy, right. And understanding that there is and abundance. and so if we look at limitation then we'll be limited and i know that that might sound sort of lofty or ideal or something but it does come down to a practice um and i don't know necessarily that i have an answer um in relation to what people should believe or should not believe or you know what they you know, can overcome. But I think if anything, what I can point to is, you know, going back to what I had just described as what was left out, um, you know, of the constitution and ultimately what is left out of this society. And that is the role, um, you know, of women, um, of healers, of caretakers, And so, even looking at you know my work within rematriation, um, really has a lot to do with what we call returning the sacred to the mother. And in the U.S., you know, there has been a movement for women to be treated equally. Um, And again, you know, being very much influenced by the Haudenosaunee and seeing that. Honishoni women possessed these possessed a, a life way, right? That we just live this 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 particular way of being that's very much um, in our own authority and autonomy over our minds and our bodies, and and as so is every human being, right? Uh, you know, in in terms of the culture that we were living, and so the women saw this and said, you know, I want what she has, right? Um, I want to be able to live this way, to feel safe, to feel free, to have, you know, the right to sell my own possessions, the right to my children, the right to my own thinking, my right to my voice and the words that I say. Um, but as as women in this country uh, gained their rights, oddly enough, the rights of Indigenous women and peoples were being taken away. So as Non-indigenous women were, you know, fighting, you know, for their rights, um, you know, and particularly the movement was really first largely led by white women. Um, that, you know, as they're wanting to have rights over their children, our children were being taken away and sent to residential boarding schools, right? And so there was just this like flip of um, how we were able to live, you know, based on the actions within this society, right? Within this, within the United States, within Canada, throughout the Americas. I mean, this this really happened. Um, but I guess what I'm getting to is that, you know, when you look back to what, what were people seeing then, right? What were people seeing? And there was a space where there was an understanding that, especially among the Haudenosaunee, that women are not equals. In fact, we hold an elevated status among our peoples because of the fact that we're life givers. So, when you can understand the perspective again, take the lens off, right, and hear the words I'm saying to understand that life giving and that the gift of being able to give life into this world is a gift. And Therefore, it is something very sacred, something very protected, and that our societies were very much structured around that type of protection. But yet, as people and as human beings, as women and men, we both have equal responsibilities to protecting life. Protecting the plants, the waters, right? Care, Caretaking, not just protecting, but caretaking, tending to life. That's why we're here on this planet. The planet is very life-giving. And therefore, that becomes our responsibility is to oversee these life-giving qualities, right? So to be able to raise healthy, happy human beings, the role of the mother and of the woman is very Important, The role of the healer, male or female or, you know, a, a third gender or no gender um, was very much, again, protected in the sense that this is a sacred space and understanding that you're offering a sacred gift that is being given to humans to be able to live out a healthy life on this planet right they're living into their gifts the gifts that we were given as women the gifts that we were given as healers whatever that might be right it's understanding that that is very much a sacred responsibility and therefore we 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 elevate that we protect it we look at these as gifts and so then when you see the creation of the united states Those things that were once protected and considered sacred, revered, elevated, were then left out of the Constitution, right? Left out of being able to be given rights. Um, And therefore, what you see is very much uh, what you see today is a result of that, right? So... You know, that's my answer in terms of going back again to what can indigenous knowledge create space and understanding for today that we can begin to act and treat each other in a much better, healthier way, right? Not just for you as an individual, but the collective and the collective, including that which gives us life, which... Mm -hmm goes all the way back to our Mother Earth.
0: Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, just to kind of reiterate and and um, the, in the same way that, you know, America's interpretation of democracy was this bastardized version that left out everybody besides, you know, landowning white men, right? right. The version of women's rights and female empowerment that we've seen played out in this country was this totally um, appropriated but also bastardized version of something that these early suffragettes witnessed, right? Uh, living near Haudenosaunee women, right? They they saw something and then they kind of interpreted it in their own way and the way that they interpreted it uh, left out, <laughs> um, you know, care for other women, right? Um, across different cultures. Um, also left out it also yeah as you mentioned um kind of became this fierce interpretation of demanding equal rights um which is which is not what y'all had going on um but a more sort of advanced and nuanced system that that truly worked for the whole system right Yeah, and,
1: and i think one thing you know and i, I will have to to kind of conclude um with this you know is to think about like the the conflation of um, you know, democracy and capitalism. because I really think that so many people see them almost one in the same, without realizing it, without consciously being aware that I'm looking at democracy as the right to pursue this capitalistic notion, in which this country operates in, right? They, they've become intertwined in a way, and you can see how one really is quite destructive um, in terms of capitalism. Um, one of our aunties, um, Pat McCabe, who is Diné, had said, um, recently in a talk that um, I was giving alongside uh, with her and she said that um, if every contract that currently exists were to have to be fulfilled there that it would be impossible because the resources upon which that it's calling just it it can't be provided for. There is nothing that is regenerative. There's nothing that's in the way of reciprocity or that's in the way of giving back. And that's one aspect of Indigenous culture and economy is it it, it is based in reciprocity. And so when you take something, you know, or when you need something, I guess I should say, first, you want to give thanks for it. Right. And you want to always be able to only just take only what you need to be able to leave some for others. And so that it can still continue to be available to other people in the future and the future generations. And so you have to give thanks for it and you have to give something for it. Right. And so um, I just want to be able to to close out with that. I know we we had probably had more time scheduled for Q and A and all these wonderful things, you know, but um, you know, again, like going back, I just wanted to share, I'm actually uh, wearing um, wampum earrings and these are made from the quahog shell. And there was actually this like belief that wampum was used as a form of exchange and money, which was totally incorrect. And wampum was really used um, in terms of creating agreements between each other and creating you know, like a more of a sacred covenant that we create, and one of those covenants, um, in particular, being the Two Row Wampum Treaty, which was of sixteen thirteen, created between the Haudenosaunee and the Dutch, and that really opened the doorway to expansion um, into, you know, the westward, you know, parts of the country, so to speak. Um, and, you know, to me, when we think about, you know, how do we undo the place that we're in? Well, I think it's really important. It's um, now for Americans to stand up and to to not accept being complicit in this process of genocide anymore. And to um, really find whatever means necessary through your own representation in government to overturn this doctrine of discovery. Because every time you purchase um, real estate, you know, you're participating in this doctrine of discovery. Um, You know, the invisibilization of indigenous peoples and these teachings is participating in this doctrine of discovery. Right. So be complicit no more in that. Right. And to really take action in that way and begin to make things right. And so where do you turn? Well, I say turn to the treaties. Right. The founding fathers of this country had a very, um, had very good relationships with the Haudenosaunee and understood, began to understand these principles of democracy. Um, But again, like I said, many things were left out. But if you want to find out what they are, go back to the original agreements that were made with our people, you know, by these, you know, very early, you know, the colonists, the founding fathers that honor our relationship together here on this land to be able to live in reciprocity with each other, respecting each other, and also looking at what is our commitment to ensuring that we're taking care of the land, of the water, and the resources together, and that we are all provided for.
0: Beautiful. Michelle, thank you so, so, so much for your time today for all the beautiful teachings that you're sharing. Um, I am want you to to go back to your beautiful retreat space right now and also just um you you said this already, but Michelle's the founder of Rematriation. And so just anything that you wanted to share about how people could learn more about rematriation.
1: Um, sure. So you can go on to rematriation.com. Um, and you can uh, sign up there for our newsletter. You can you know, read through our website. We have uh, films and media there and you can make a tax deductible contribution uh, that allows us to continue to do the work to provide the public education um, and, um, and, and ensuring that there is representation of indigenous peoples and, and spaces. Um, and as you move forward, I think that's really important. Um, in addition to that, I also have a consulting company, um, Indigenous Concepts Consulting, uh, which Eden did the lovely, beautiful work on our website. So you get to see some of her work there. So it's indigenous-concepts.com. Uh, um, so I encourage you to take a look at that. Um, and in addition to that, um, I'm working right now on a fellowship. I am a open societies um Uh, Foundation's um, fellow under the Equality um, Fellowship, and so I'm working right now just to kind of really continue to help to advocate for sharing a lot of the information that I just shared with you today in much broader ways, so in any ways that um, you think you can be helpful to uh, get this information out and to um, really activate Americans to take action, um, you know, overturn this doctrine of discovery go back to original agreements that's what I have so but I really appreciate Eden for you inviting me to be here today Um, it's really wonderful to be with all of you and uh, please do um, stay in contact so thank you
0: beautiful have a good one thank you all for being here much love and thank you so much Michelle
1: perfect thank you Eden all right take care